Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with threats and warnings from Russia directed at Finland and Sweden, two neutral countries now seriously considering joining NATO because their citizens are alarmed at Russia's barbaric destruction of Ukraine and want the common defence and Article 5 protection that NATO offers. Joining us is Derek Shearer, who served in the Clinton administration as United States Ambassador to Finland and is currently a Professor of Diplomacy and World Affairs at Occidental College and the Director of the McKinnon Center for Global Affairs at Occidental College. We will discuss his article at the Washington Monthly as war rages in Ukraine, Finland offers answers and explore what Finlandization actually means since many compare a possible end to the war in Ukraine with the treaty the Soviet Union forced Finland to accept after the Hitler-Stalin Pact opened the way for a Soviet invasion in the 1939-1940 Winter War, in which the underdog fought bravely, as the Ukrainians are doing today, but had to make territorial concessions and accept neutrality during the Cold War. Then we'll look into the possibility that Elon Musk, who already has a 14.9% stake in Twitter, could buy the popular platform outright for $43 billion and then bring back Donald Trump as the free speech absolutist has hinted he will do. This already has the rabid Republican cheer squad of Jim Jordan and Lauren Bobbitt over the moon saying Musk will, quote, make Twitter great again. Joining us is Victor Picard, a professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform, and his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And we will discuss his article at The Nation, We Can't Let Billionaires Control Major Communications Platforms. Then finally, we'll speak with Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor of The American Prospect and the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast and the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. He joins us to discuss his article at The American Prospect, Blame Police When They Fail Horribly, New York Cops Bungle Their Response to Mass Shooter, and how, in spite of failures, The mayor of New York is calling for more transit cops above the already 3,500 and more money for the NYPD, which has a budget of almost $11 billion, more than Ukraine's military budget. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. 
And joining us now, Derek Shearer, who served in the Clinton administration as the U.S. Ambassador to Finland. He is currently a Professor of Diplomacy and World Affairs at Occidental College and the Director of the McKinnon Center for Global Affairs at Occidental College. And he has an article at the Washington Monthly, As War Rages in Ukraine, Finland Offers Answers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Derek Shearer. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Finnish Prime Minister on uh, Wednesday, talking about joining NATO, she said, quote, we also need to be very frank about consequences and risks. There are both short-term and long-term risks. These risks are both if we apply and if we do not apply. The difference between being a partner and being a member is very clear and will remain so, she said. There is no other way to have security guarantees than under NATO's deterrence and common defense as guaranteed by NATO's Article 5. So the latest poll I heard, Derek, was something like 68% of Finns now support joining NATO when before this war in Ukraine, it was never really discussed seriously, was it? Well, it was discussed seriously, but there was not um, majority public opinion in favor, and nor was there the sense that it might actually be necessary I mean, for the Finns at the end of the Cold War, the big security decision was actually joining the European Union. I was ambassador in Helsinki and actually was standing with the prime minister at the National Broadcasting House when Finland voted to join the EU. And the ads for the campaign were very clear. I mean, there was a picture of Finland in blue and said yes. And it was a picture of Finland in red that said no. So they knew what they were doing, and they viewed joining the EU as a security guarantee. They also joined what was called Partnership for Peace, which was to work very closely with NATO. And I could talk more about you know how we did that, but one of the big things was they chose to buy our F-18 Hornets, which means that over the years, the Finnish military is fully what's called interoperable with NATO. So that was their security decision. They decided they weren't going to apply for NATO membership. They didn't need to. And they also didn't want to cause extra problems with Russia that was in a bit of chaos. But the things have changed because of what Putin has done in Ukraine. And overwhelmingly now, majority of public opinion is in favor of joining. What this means is that if the leadership, and Finland's a very deliberative democracy, proceeds and the parliament recommends joining NATO, public opinion will then be even more in favor, probably three quarters, maybe 80%. So they've begun this process in the parliament, and the betting now is, in fact, that they are going to apply. Well, it's pretty clear, though, isn't it, Derek Shearer, that Putin is more afraid of the EU than NATO, at least when it comes to Ukraine. Um, That was what precipitated the uh, revolution in the Maidan, the revolution of dignity, and the seizing of Crimea. So at the time, I guess it was a different Russia. What did the Russians say about Finland joining the EU? Oh, there wasn't even an issue, in fact. I mean, this was literally, you know, we're talking about... um, Yeltsin is president of Russia. Um, Russia's trying to decide 
what Russia, without the Soviet Union, this is a few years after the Soviet Union fell apart, and having good relations with the EU was a positive for Russia. Russia was trying to develop its economy, and having Finland join the EU was not a security issue for Russia at all. We had a lot of other issues going on between Russia and NATO I could talk about. We held a summit in Helsinki between Yeltsin and Clinton that created a relationship between NATO and Russia that allowed for Russian city military officers to be stationed at NATO headquarters in Brussels. We were fully transparent on NATO war plans, made it clear that NATO was not aimed at Russia. And there was even talk ultimately of uh, Russia joining NATO, but it was a different, different time period. And what's happened in the 21st century, both because of the Bush administration and overwhelmingly because of Putin, uh, has changed the security landscape for Finland and, of course, for Europe. And, of course, the Russians in particular, the former president of Russia, uh, Medvedev, is warning Finland not to, and Sweden not to join NATO and basically saying we're going to nuclearize the Baltics. And uh, he said that Russia's response would be taken with, quote, no emotion with a cold head. But of course, the Baltics are already nuclearized. Russia has nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad, which is this this little enclave between Lithuania and Poland the size of Connecticut, which is bristling with nuclear weapons. So the Lithuanian prime minister sort of uh, dismissed those Russian threats how do they play in Finland? Well, they're not really worried about the nuclear threats. And of course, you know, the Soviets have nuclear subs in uh, Murmansk. I mean, when I was ambassador, we helped them. Some of their nuclear subs had cracked open and sank. And we helped them deal with that crisis at the time. But, you know, it's not really about nuclear weapons. That's just sort of a little breastfeeding in the part of the Russians to try and say, you know, we're mad at you. But they've also said that Finland joining NATO is not an existential threat to Russia. They know Finland is not going to, you know, invade Russia. Um, what they, the Finns are concerned about, and they should be, is let's say they apply, and they, of course, would be accepted. But there's going to be an interim period, maybe up to a year before they're actually accepted and fall under the Article 5 protections. And there they're concerned about Russian meddling, whether it's cyber meddling or flying their jets close to the border or maybe even some things with their secret service. But the Finnish military is up on all this. They're well aware. They've been talking about it in Finland and publicly. And, you know, they're they're very well organized society. And also the Russians know that, you know, the Finns fight and are no pushover. So I can't see a world in which Russia actually physically invades Finland as an EU country, let alone, of course, as a NATO country. And as you say, the Baltics are already in NATO. So the notion of a NATO countries in the Baltics is already gone. That, you know, trains left the station. And again, I'm speaking with Derek Shearer, who served in the Clinton administration as U.S. Ambassador to Finland. He's currently a professor of diplomacy and world affairs at Occidental College and the director of the McKinnon Center for Global Affairs at Occidental College. And he has an article at the Washington Monthly, As War Rages in Ukraine, Finland 
offers answers. So let's talk about this term Finlandization, which has been bandied about. And uh, when he met, well, before he met with Putin, before the war began in his efforts to prevent the war, French President Emmanuel Macron offered what he called a Finlandization option for Ukraine that apparently annoyed the Finns. So clarify what this means. I mean, if you go back to the Hitler-Stalin pact, the Ribbentrop-Molotov pact in 1939, that enabled uh, both the Soviet Union and Germany to invade Poland, uh, and it gave Russia a carte blanche to attack Finland. But it didn't work out that well for the Russians, but of course they were fighting a country of what, it's only 5.5 million people now, so it must have been even fewer then. But the Finns put up an incredible fight just as the uh, Ukrainians are now. Yes, I mean, the the Finns famously fought back in the Winter War of 1939. Uh, Many people don't know that the Molotov cocktail was actually of Finnish origin, It was named after the foreign minister Molotov, after whom the infamous Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was, you know, negotiated. And it's sad to me to see, you know, the Ukrainian people having to make Molotov cocktails to throw at Russian tanks in the 21st century. But the Finns did fight. Um, But at the end of the day, um, as part of World War II, they had to give up territory, um, territory between Leningrad, now St. Petersburg in Finland, what's called Karelia. Over 400,000 Finns moved out of Karelia once it was taken over by the Soviet Union and were relocated and given land and jobs in Finland. And they had to have a peace treaty. It involved actually a Soviet base in the 50s um, on Finnish territory and Finnish neutrality. But the Finns were very smart. I mean, they did what they had to do to maintain their independence. They played their neutrality really well to say often when the Soviets tried to press them on things, no, we're neutral. But they were clearly Western oriented. There were things that went on that they helped us that, you know, are still secret to this day that I can't talk about. But the big point was when the Soviet Union ended. The first thing the Finns did was sign up and join the EU. They were quite clear about that. So the term Finlandization, some kind of nasty German politician put it out there as if the Finns had chosen, you know, to be in the orbit of Russia. I mean, they didn't choose their geography and they didn't choose to be invaded or fight during World War Two. And it was a Cold War deal. So it's a kind of uh, calumny on the Finns. The Finns were always Western-oriented, and as I say, joining the EU was part and parcel of that at the end of the Soviet Union. And we you know, thought all this was ancient history, Cold War history. Sadly, it's not. Well, consistently, as you point out in your article, Derek, the country of Finland ranks near the top of the world's happiest nation. And it's just across the border, uh, you have... Russia there, particularly St. Petersburg, Putin's hometown. I don't think he can describe Russia as a a happy country. Well, no, look, this is what's very sad about the whole thing, Ian. I mean, those of us, and I go way back, I was a Russia scholar. I studied Russian intensively at university. I traveled and studied there. During the Gorbachev period, I was an informal advisor to Gorbachev's group talking about 
how Russia could develop economically. Um, we all had hopes, first with Gorbachev and then with Yeltsin, that Russia would become a normal European country, a country that wanted to use its talented people and its resources to do well, to be prosperous, to develop, um, you know, to be a partner in the world. And that was the hope. Uh, it didn't work out that way for a lot of reasons. And one of was that uh, former KGB officer Putin followed on as Yeltsin's successor. And then a lot of other things we could talk about that happened, uh, especially under the Bush administration. But our hopes were for a normal, prosperous Russia. They still are today. Um, nobody has ever thought, frankly, that the West wanted to take any Russian land or property. All we wanted was for Russia to be a normal European country. So in terms of then of an end game, if there is to be one, at the, this moment, the Russians are preparing for a massive offensive in the east. Uh, they'll try and do a pincer movement to defeat or at least diminish the Ukrainian military. It seems like this is a make-or-break situation for Putin. I don't think he can afford to lose this offensive, and NATO and the U.S. are pushing in as much weapons as possible. The Russian deputy foreign minister has warned NATO and the U.S. that they will target NATO trucks delivering these weapons. So we're in, in at a moment, a, a pretty tense moment, I would say, wouldn't you, uh, Derek? And how does this the historical lesson of Finland apply here. Would it be possible that you could make a territorial compromise with the Russians, or at least the Ukrainians could? Well, it's, I, look, it's, it's, it's up to the Ukrainians to decide these things. And, and I did mention in, in my article that one could see an outcome, a negotiated peace, that might allow for some territory to go to Russia, the Donbass area, um, it could allow for an agreement by Ukraine to remain neutral and out of NATO, but it would have to allow for EU membership, and it would have to include some kind of security guarantee that Putin doesn't do this again. Um, you know, that's an absolute. And of course, the better that the Ukrainians do on the battlefield the more likely they're going to have a stronger negotiating uh, position. And so, you know, I could see a kind of Finnish solution. One of the things that's important in Finland, most people don't know, is that Sweden has a minority of people, and Swedish is a minority language in Finland. In fact, my son-in-law speaks Swedish as a first language, so does my Finnish-American grandson. And Swedish is an official second language. So you could make Russian the official second language in Ukraine and obviously treat people of Russian origin with respect and include them. But you're going to have to allow Ukraine to become a normal European nation. And whether, you know, Putin and his current gang around him would ever allow that, we just don't know. And a lot of this, sadly, is going to be determined on the battlefield. Right now, mostly the people who are suffering are women and children. It's awful. Um, whether we can have anything close to normal relations with Russia, with Putin in power, 
in the future, um, I think, is another big question mark. How do you deal with someone who's, in effect, committed war crimes? Um, we don't know. So there's well, a lot of open, open questions. Well, indeed, President Biden has said the guy's a thug, a criminal, a war criminal, and he's committing genocide. So it's not going to be easy to sit down with somebody like Putin. But in terms of Ukraine becoming neutral and non-aligned and not a part of NATO, I mean, already it's a part of NATO, isn't it, with all the weapons coming in? And if well, Ukraine... it's, not, it's not. Look, it's not just the, the weapons. One of the important things that most people don't really understand is all the training that NATO forces have given the Ukrainians. What they did, and this is part of the unsung story about this, is they converted the Ukrainian army from a Soviet-style top-down army, the kind of army you're seeing that screwed up in the invasion, into a modern, decentralized, democratic army, where you have small units that are run by commanders on the ground who make decisions on the spot. And that strategy has been able for them to halt the Russian invasion, to cut off the tanks, to deal with the helicopters, to use the kind of mobile weaponry that is being provided by the West. So you already, whether it joins NATO or not, have a skilled, trained NATO-like army in Ukraine. And that's a good thing. That should be part of its security. I mean, assuming and it joins the EU, it doesn't have to formally join NATO to be secure. But, you know, no neighbor of Russia is really going to be secure with the current Putin government and Putin's increasing sort of isolation from others in Russian society. He has this small group they call Siloviki, or sort of power guys around him, mostly former security officials uh, who support him. Now, one of the big unknowns, Ian, and we don't know, is whether the Russian military is getting fed up with this. They've lost a lot of troops. They've lost some generals. Um, they didn't. It's not clear if they wanted to do this. I mean, what are the forces driving Putin to keep doing this? And will those forces change as they see what's happened? We we don't know. Uh, we, you know, just today I read a report that over 30,000 Russian tech experts, ones that either have done their own startups or have been working with Western firms, have left the country already. I mean, this is a serious brain drain. You know, how is Russia going to become other than just a petro state if its smartest people leave? And this is what Putin's done. But just in closing, Derek, this is a moment, isn't it, to defeat Putin? Because if he wins this next battle, or at least if he even fights it to a draw, we don't know what the casualties have been on the Ukrainian side. And I spoke yesterday with an, an analyst of, of Russia saying that, you know, the Ukrainians may have won on the chessboard, but the Russians have hundreds of more, more pawns. And that's the reality, isn't it? Absolutely. And I don't think it's going to end, you know, in the next few weeks, sadly. It's going to be drawn out. Um, I don't think uh, Putin, I mean, Tom Friedman had a column today, you know, and said, what advice would people give Putin? Just say, let's make peace. I don't think that's going to happen in the short run. Um, we don't know how long this 
current military situation is going to go. I think, sadly, it's going to go much longer uh, than any of us hope. More people are going to die. There are going to be more refugees. But the longer it goes on, and this is really also a sad part, the worse it is for Russia and for the Russian people. Um, so this is a tragedy all around. And, um, you know, at another point, we could have a long talk at how did we get here? I mean, we're in a place you can't go back to decisions that were made in the 90s or to an election that was held. And instead of electing Al Gore, we elected, you know, George Bush or Yeltsin picked Putin instead of a liberal. Those were things that already happened. Uh, but it would be interesting to talk about was there another path at the moment? Uh, sadly, the, the path is one of fighting on the ground in Ukraine. Well, Derek Shearer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Derek Shearer, who served in the Clinton administration as United States Ambassador to Finland. He's currently a professor of diplomacy and world affairs at Occidental College and the director of the McKinnon Center for Global Affairs at Occidental College. And he has an article at the Washington Monthly, As War Rages in Ukraine, Finland Offers Answers. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the possibility that Elon Musk who already has a 14.9% stake in Twitter, could buy the popular platform outright for $43 billion and then bring back Donald Trump. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Victor Picard, who's a professor at the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism, and the Future of Media Reform. And his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And he has an article at The Nation, We Can't Let Billionaires Control Major Communications Platforms. Welcome to Background Briefing, Victor Picard. Thanks for having me on the show, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the idea or the notion that Elon Musk, who's already bought a big chunk of Twitter, now on Wednesday he's uh, saying he wants to buy the entire social media network for $43 billion. And I think he's probably one of the richest people in the world, probably short of Vladimir Putin. So this is a scary notion, because I'm absolutely convinced, Victor, that the first thing that Musk would do would bring back Trump. That's certainly what many people, many conservatives are hoping for at the moment. It's difficult to predict exactly what he will do, but you are right. He's threatening to lead a hostile takeover of the entire company. And this came to light just as my piece was going to press this morning. So I don't know if that was good timing or, or bad timing, but it certainly has created a firestorm. But he's already getting praised from Jim Jordan, Lauren Bobbitt, Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're saying that Musk's buying Twitter 
will make Twitter great again. This is the the lunatic fringe of the GOP that's cheering cheering him on. So not a good sign. Yeah, it's very troubling. I mean, the moment last week when it was announced that he was joining the board, you saw right wing wish lists proliferating on Twitter and the conservative media sphere calling for, of course, bringing Trump back, but also removing what they refer to as left wing political censorship. And basically what they'd like to see is just a a libertarian free for all where there are no content regulations whatsoever. And, And that's a it's a very troubling prospect. So what has he said that he plans to do? I mean, he's not specific about his plans, and he describes himself as a free speech absolutist. So do you know what that means? Yeah, well, I, I mean, we can definitely speculate. And despite the fact that he says he's a free speech absolutist, I mean, we know from his own track record that there are a lot of qualifications to that free speech absolutism. We saw what happened at Tesla when the company was under his control and they frequently tried to stifle dissent. Um, So it seems like his version of of free speech is like the boss's free speech, free speech for him, but the rest of us are, are meant to remain obedient and silent. And we can only imagine how that would translate on Twitter itself, but certainly without these kinds of content moderation policies. It means that people won't have restrictions on their accounts if they harass people, if they spread dangerous misinformation. So it's it's really not a, a free speech that would serve democracy very well. It really equates having money to speech. So the more money you have, the more speech power you have. And that's the world that he seems to be sketching out for us. So What's going on then with the board of Twitter? I mean, what can they do to prevent a hostile takeover? I honestly don't know that there's a whole lot that can be done. I mean, there's going to be all kinds of maneuverings uh, behind the scenes. There have been some people speculating today that this is all a stunt, that we, you know, that essentially Elon Musk is just trolling all of us. Um, that we shouldn't take it seriously. I personally don't know what to expect, but I also think that all this focus on his antics misses the bigger picture, which is we shouldn't have a situation. We shouldn't have billionaires in the first place, but we certainly shouldn't have a situation where billionaires can just step in and capture our core information and communication infrastructures. And so really this is just a symptom of deeper structural pathologies that as a society, we, we need to start talking about alternative ownership structures. Well, a billionaire, of course, bought the uh, Washington Post. So are there good billionaires and bad billionaires? I mean, how, how do you make the distinction, Victor? Right. I, I, don't, I, I had subscribed to the bumper sticker, which says that any billionaire is a policy failure. I mean, I, you know, I don't think any democratic society should have that much concentrated wealth in one person or even one group of people. But really, I don't, regardless of whether they're so-called benevolent billionaires, um, and some people are hoping that they sweep in and save journalism, for example, but we really should be talking about democratizing our media institutions, making sure that 
these decisions are spread out throughout society, that we all should have a say in this. And that's not the kind of system we have designed right now. Right now, it's a hyper capitalistic system where the marketplace of ideas is conflated with the capitalist market. And that's that's very dangerous for any democratic society. And again, I'm speaking with Victor Picard, who's a professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. And his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And he has an article at The Nation, We Can't Let Billionaires Control Major Communications Platforms. So initially we were told that Musk was going to be on the board and that didn't happen. So what maneuver happened there with the uh, Twitter chief executive, Parag uh, Agrawal? Well, again, we're really reduced to speculating on, you know, what actually went down. Um, But we do know that for a brief few days, it looked as if Elon Musk was joining the board of 11 members, and he was going to have uh, a direct say in in various Twitter policies. Um, And then there was an abrupt uh, reversal. And um, we don't know exactly why that happened. There was some speculation that the cap on his stock uh, holdings uh, was um, something that was not uh, agreeable to him. So the moment that he decided not to go on the board, there was already speculation that this would then allow him to buy up more stock and even uh, become a controlling uh, stockholder. And of course, that's what we saw happen today, an attempt to to outright, uh, you know, buy and take over Twitter. So we don't really know. We don't know these kinds of power struggles that are happening behind closed doors. And that that in itself is problematic, right? This is something that many of us are relying on for news and information, this essential infrastructure. We should all be having these discussions about Twitter governance. It shouldn't be up to just a handful of wealthy men. So what's troubling about Musk is, you know, for example, remember when the uh, the young Thai school kids were trapped in an underwater cave and the British diver that led the team that rescued them... He, Musk accused him of being a pedophile. It seemed to come out right. of nowhere. I mean, that's free speech. But, you know, you and I work in the world of journalism and you can't just print what you think. You have to print what you can prove. I mean, there are rules. And that's the problem with social media and the Internet and Facebook and all of these platforms that under the Clinton administration, they were given a free pass. they they don't have the responsibility that publishers have. So is that the first step to get rid of, what is it called, Section 202? Uh, Section 230. Yes. 230, I, I, sorry. I don't, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's the, the conversation we need to be having, although, I mean, we should be having that conversation in general um, about whether it can be reformed or not. But really what we what we also should be talking about is that, again, this is not a level playing field, and you're spot on that Musk has used the Twitter platform to attack his enemies, to basically try to to silence them. Again, this is his version of free speech, um, and he's got tens of millions of followers, so it's, it's just not 
it's not oftentimes when we hear about this kind of libertarian ideal of a, a free speech environment, it ignores all these pre-existing inequities. It ignores the fact that some people have very large loudspeakers that they're speaking through while the rest of us are speaking in whispers. So I do think we need to bring that into focus as well. Well, his fellow South African, Peter Thiel, and they were partners in PayPal, and I believe they still are, at least they're friends. Peter Thiel's also a, a libertarian, but he's one that's getting deeply involved in politics. He's running or financing a couple of really reactionary Republican candidates for the Senate in Ohio and in Arizona. So is Musk influenced by Peter Thiel? In other words, I'm speculating that the first thing that Musk would do if he controlled Twitter was to bring back Trump. And that's certainly what all these lunatic right-wing congresspeople like Lauren Bobbitt and Jim Jordan and Mac Gates and company are all crowing about at the moment. Do we know what that connection between Peter Thiel, who really does seem to have a kind of malevolent view, or at least a misanthropic view of life, and he's already got a bunker down in New Zealand that he can retreat to when the world ends, and um, presumably he'll use one of Elon Musk's SpaceX rockets to go off to Mars. So these people are troubling. And the other guy that's at least, you know, I gave the example of the Washington Post, um, democracy dies in the darkness, that's their motto, they're doing terrific work, but he also wants to fly off into Mars as well. So what is it about these guys that want to abandon this planet? It does seem fairly dystopian, especially when you put it into those terms. But I think, I mean, I have no idea how much they're in connection with each other. Uh, I do, it does seem that they're drinking from the same libertarian trough, at least when it comes to rules and regulations. Um, you know, it's, it's, they're very quick to invoke this kind of fealty to the market, this sort of market fundamentalism where, you know, basically what the market does defines the, the highest horizon of freedom that we can imagine. Um, and again, this only serves uh, very wealthy people. For the rest of us, we're, you know, disenfranchised for this, from this kind of market censorship. So, uh, so yeah, deeply troubling. Um, and really the only antidote to it is to democratize these firms. Well, you mentioned... Uh... Elon Musk's Twitter followers. It's actually 81 million followers. And, and on uh, March the 25th, he sent out a tweet, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? How else could you interpret that as, as to say he wants no restrictions? What, what is it that Twitter is not adhering to? Do you think he's saying that? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, again, we're reduced to kind of guessing and, and trying to read the codes of his tweets. But I, I think that there's only one way in general to interpret a lot of the things that he's been saying thus far on Twitter. And that is he doesn't think there should be content regulations that, you know, that we shouldn't ban people like Trump from abusing the platform and that basically anything goes, you know, a kind of Hobbesian hellscape of all against all. Uh, you know, that's, that seems to be his vision for free speech. 
So why does he have 81 million followers? What, what is his appeal? I mean, just because he smokes marijuana, that doesn't make him a, a good guy. I mean, is that his appeal? Why do people follow him, apart from the fact that he's incredibly rich? Now, you know, the products that he makes, uh, I don't know about SpaceX, but they're certainly they're basically taken over from NASA. But there's nothing <laughs> but praise for Tesla, right? And not necessarily the way he operates a firm and cracks down on the free speech of his own employees and a, a black employee that complained about racial discrimination was silenced along with a, a female engineer who was driven out complaining about sexual harassment. So we know that, that he's a hypocrite as far as, like all billionaires, he controls people and doesn't pay them, uh, at least in the case of Bezos, won't allow them to have unions. I guess Musk is also anti-union, isn't he? I don't know that for sure, but I would assume uh, that he is, if I, yeah. if, I, if I had to guess. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure he is. So I don't think the UAW controls his uh, factories. But you've got to give him credit at least for what he produces in terms of electric cars and, and batteries and stuff like that that seems to be quite visionary in many ways. But the libertarians, are, you know, they used to... They used to always complain that liberals were dreamers and un, unrealistic, but I think the libertarians are the real dreamers in terms of their bizarre idea of uh, of a society without restraints. There was actually a, an interesting book and an author I interviewed a while back who uh, wrote a book about this libertarian experiment in a small town in New Hampshire where the libertarians took over the entire local government and soon the bears were marauding and killing people in their own homes etc i mean it was it's it's pretty bizarre but anyway i'm getting off the topic here a little bit what is the appeal do you have any idea i don't i mean i can certainly see why you know this notion of individual freedom and having no impediments on this freedom can be very appealing um, but it, it's it's not really based in social reality, as you just noted. I mean, we need we need uh, everything from you know uh, fire departments and public schools and you know public goods and services that the market does not always provide for. In fact, often does not provide for. And if we just let everything dictated by this unfettered so-called free market, we end up with a few very rich people and the rest of us are are impoverished and our freedom is diminished so um not not a good scenario but unfortunately it's not it seems to be an ideology that's not going away anytime soon well the irony there of course it's in terms of tesla is that you know the republicans make a big deal out of solara this company that the obama administration put money into and it was a flop but they also put money into tesla so, you know, he's a beneficiary of the American taxpayer. Uh, so and now he's the richest guy in the world. I think he could d do with a little bit of humility there, couldn't he? Absolutely. I mean, you're, you put your, 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 your finger on a core problem here, a core contradiction in libertarian thinking, which is all of this was made possible by society. This wasn't just the, the, the singular genius of, you know, a lone talent that got to where they are. In fact, our tax structures alone should have prevented any of these billionaires from emerging. 
Um, so yes, these, you're, there, there's no reason, this is not the natural order of things. We need to change our policies so we don't end up with billionaires owning everything, not just cars, but also the outlets for our news and information. Well, Victor Picard, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Victor Picard, who's a professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. And his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And he has an article at The Nation, We Can't Let Billionaires Control Major Communications Platforms. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how, in spite of failures in response to the mass shooter in New York, the mayor of New York is calling for more transit cops above the already 3500 and more money for the NYPD, which has a budget of almost $11 billion, more than Ukraine's military budget. When you care about the issues of the day, check your facts on Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, who is a managing editor at the American Prospect. He's a co-host of the At Left Anchor podcast and the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And he has an article at the American Prospect, Blame Police When They Fail Horribly, New York Cops Bungle Their Response to a Mass Shooter. Welcome to Background Briefing. Ryan Cooper. Thanks for having me. So whenever you criticize the police, uh, you kind of end up like the skunk at a picnic, don't you, Ryan? <laughs> yeah, the, it's it's funny to remember back in 2020 when we were having the largest mass protests in American history about police brutality. And suddenly it's all been, you know, thrown down the memory hole. And anybody, you know, who, who thinks that the restarting the war on crime is maybe a bad move is like exiled from polite company. Right. And nobody can say defund the police. Not that that wasn't exactly the smartest political slogan. Yeah, I, I think, well, you know, the whether you agree with the, you know, defund the police or not exactly, uh, you know, and the, I mean, and sort of overlooking the fact that virtually no elected Democrat uh, of any stature actually endorsed that specifically. You know, you can just look at the amount of resources that the New York City police have. Uh, the budget's something like $11 billion, $10.8 billion for fiscal year 2023. Uh, that's more than the entire military budget of Ukraine. Uh, you know, that that recently just sunk uh, the flagship of the Russian Navy and has been, you know, going pound for pound, punch for punch with the with the, with Russia in a land war. 
it's also almost a quarter of the budget of the French military. And they have, you know, serious overseas deployment and they run the only nuclear powered aircraft carrier outside the United States. And so when this shooting happened, they already had cops in every station. They couldn't catch the guy. He got away. And when uh, they went to check the secu uh, security footage, because they got surveillance cameras in every station, oh, one of the uh, cameras was broken. It turns out people have been complaining about poor maintenance for forever. And uh, they only found him because he left his credit card and uh, keys to a U-Haul at the scene. They found those and they found pictures of him. They broadcast pictures all over the place. The guy was wandering around and apparently, last I heard, uh, was both spotted by a bystander and um, turned himself in. And so, you know, the police had had nothing to do with catching him, you know, and they, they couldn't stop him. And they and all they did was to sort of like broadcast his his uh, face. And it's like, what are we spending all this money on? You know. And the mayor, of course, the new mayor is a former NYPD police officer. Um, a subway cop. He was a subway cop, right? And your article says that there are 3,500 subway cops? Yeah, and Adam says, I mean, I don't know if he's going to do this or not, but he's going to double it, you know. So they already have enough. You know, uh, my friends in New York have been complaining about the police. They're in every station, and they, they don't have anything to do in there almost all the time. So they're just playing on their phones, or they're, like, kicking the crap out of some turnstile jumpers. You know, I mean, it's just not a good use of resources. And when the, when the random mass shooting does happen to take place, it, uh, you know, they can't stop it. Well, just to touch on the camera issue, is that the responsibility of the MTA, the Metropolitan Transport Authority? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, you know, I don't know where the, where the budget goes. But, you know, it's, it's sort of part and parcel with the whole city budget, given that you know, I mean, this is a security measure and the police department's already eating up such a huge proportion of the budget. And, you know, like all of these departments are, are quite similar in that they are, you know, hugely overfunded and suffused with corruption from top to bottom, pretty much. And so, you know, it's kind of like part and parcel with the whole uh, dynamic. Well, Adams himself, he he's a pretty wacky guy and he believes some pretty crazy stuff. I, yeah. I'm, I was kind of surprised he got elected. I mean, there, there were some other more experienced politicians who ran against him and it was the law and order issue that obviously proved to be the, the case and that's what people voted for and it's likely to happen here in Los Angeles. you got a real estate developer running for mayor and he might well get elected because he's running on a law and order issues get the homeless off the street that kind of stuff so yeah uh, nobody's really has anybody done a profile on eric adams oh yeah there's been plenty of reporting you know local local news has been he's been on the radio for a long time you know it, it's funny to remember um that he's sort of the pigeonholed as the war on crime guy now but before that he was a like he, he was the guy that bookers would go to when they wanted to have a former police guy who was like, we need to be tough on crime, but also we need to reform the department. So he was sort of uh, 
triangulating a little bit in that respect. He seems to have moved to the right um, in the context of like the sort of national attention on New York City. And you're right that there is a real, you know, that the, 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 the whole war on crime buzz has really picked up in certain cities. You know, uh, uh, in Philadelphia, we recently reelected our reformist district attorney against a police union backed challenger by a huge margin. So it didn't really work there. But I think it, you know, it, it, it tends to demonstrate how easy it is to sort of uh, play on people's emotional reactions to crime. You know, just the fact that, you know, when murders or carjackings and that sort of thing take place, you know, it's pretty easy to get people really freaked out about it. But the fact is, when you look at the New York City Police Department clearance rates uh, in 2021, they averaged about 72 percent from 55 percent in the in the third quarter, uh, 86 percent in the first quarter. These are not very good numbers. You know, Finland's murder clearance rate is about 99 percent, you know, and so like this dynamic where the police fail to prevent crime and then crime happens. And the only possible reaction is we need to give even more money to the police who didn't do their jobs properly here. It's just mystifying to me. And the other thing apparently that didn't work along with most of the cameras being down was that the first police there were, uh, their radios didn't work, right? Yeah, the, the police later claimed that the it was because the guy couldn't figure out, you know, what button to push or something, that the radio was working, he just couldn't figure out how to work it, which I don't know that that's really exculpatory, you know, that like we have a radio, but we didn't in our police training process to tell him how to work it. Um, yeah, I mean, just total face plan across the board. And the shooter, he exploded these smoke grenades in the rail car, right? Uh, And then he shot 33 shots, miraculously didn't kill anybody, although he wounded 10 people. And then he escaped with the panicked crowd, right? And then what, just went across the platform and got on another train. That's what happened. I'm not sure this part has been confirmed yet, but I've seen some some initial reporting that for some reason the the, the trains weren't stopped. They didn't freeze things in place right around 36th Street Station. Um, And that's something that the MTA could have done. And it's something that the the NYPD could have done from the way that I understand, you know, like you should be able to make a couple of calls and make that happen. And they were stopped later, but it was too late. The guy was already out and about. Um, But yeah, you know, I mean. And he was wearing that bright orange jacket that, you know, street maintenance workers wear. Right. So. Yeah. It's not as if it's surprising that nobody noticed him firing at them and then escaping with them. That's yeah. I mean, will I there think be any kind of <laughs> it? It on the one hand, you you know you 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 think well, they you know if you if you're so tough, you, you should have you know been able to keep the city safe. I think in this particular circumstance, it shows you that like it's it's pretty difficult to prevent crime once somebody is in this position where it's like you can just buy, you know, a a gun that, you know, a handgun that that fires really quickly and you just go into any crowded space and just start shooting randomly. Like, that's really difficult to prevent. Um, And, you know, cops aren't going to once you're in that position where people do that, you know, the, the like police just 
are not going to be able to stop it. You know, the the best they can do is catch somebody after the fact. And as we see, we saw today that they're not even very good at doing that part of it. So I was going to ask, though, is there going to be any kind of after action report here? Any reckoning or is this just people have relieved that this guy is caught? And he's clearly, by the way, I mean, again, you go back to mental illness as being the untreated problem here. And when you combine mental illness with access to firearms, you have the American tragedy. And it's not as if this guy wasn't advertising the fact that he was loopy. I mean, had the most horrible stuff that he ranted about on his social media. So I guess the reason he, he still was able to have a handgun was he was only convicted of multiple misdemeanors in many states, but not a felony. Yeah. Hardly seems like a excuse to me. Yeah, and the, um, the, the Supreme Court is actually right now considering a case that would loosen New York's concealed carry laws, which are currently rather strict. So, you know, more guns in the subway is the, definitely the thing that we need. Right. Well, that is something that I actually discussed uh, yesterday with a law professor, historian at Fordham University. And uh, that's a pretty shocking development. And with this conservative, ultra-conservative court, uh, it's likely that they're going to have red state, loose, lax, permissive gun laws in New York City. That The law they're overturning is over 100 years old. And uh, you'll have open carry, concealed carry in subway cars in New York before you know it. Yeah, and I think, again, you know, this this speaks to the whole just total lack of seriousness when it comes to um, murders in particular. You know, we, we have an incredibly high rate of homicides in this country relative to other, you know, wealthy nations. Um, and I think the there's there's probably two big things you could point to that are associated with crime. The first one is inequality. Um, our, our welfare state is terrible and high levels of inequality, you know, motivate crime for, for a lot of reasons. And there are studies about how, you know, welfare programs like supplemental security income, when they're cut off, cause a large increase in violent crime. And the other thing is just guns. You know, we got, we got, uh, like more than one gun for every citizen in the country, you know, is, uh, swirling around. It's just incredibly easy to get high-powered, you know, assault rifles or handguns uh, to, to commit any kind of atrocity you, you might be interested in committing. And it's just the, like, we've completely given up on the idea that we're going to do anything about that. And so, you know, it's it's just like... Uh, we're just going to have to sit here and just endure this, uh, you know, mass shootings and regular shootings, uh, homicides and suicides just as a consequence of our daily functioning. And it's like, well, we can't really do anything about it except sort of hysterically plow more money into the police, which don't do even, you know, solve any of the difficult uh, murder cases anyways. Well, Ron Cooper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Brian Cooper, who is a managing editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast and the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And he has an article at the American Prospect. 
blame police when they fail horribly. New York cops bungled their response to a mass shooter. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.